All right, I think we're going to get started here. A few minutes late. All right, I'll pray and then we'll, uh, we'll start. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, this ability to uh, study your word and history. I pray that you would uh, bless this time and bless the uh, sermon and service ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so this is... Um, the last week of February, I think. This is the last week of this sort of session series thing that I've been doing. Um, Dan's got another series coming up, I think, next month. Uh, so we're going to wrap things up. Uh, we've been going over, obviously, the context for the Old and New Testament. And uh, we are at the Jewish Revolt, the Great Jewish Revolt. <clears throat> so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Last week, we talked about the background or like the beginnings of it. So this time, hopefully, we'll kind of finish it off. And um, we should be able to read some of Revelation um, and compare some things that happen. And uh, I've got a map up here of the area of Judea, so we can look or look at some of that. But I won't get to try. I'll try not to get into too much detail. Um, but... Um, yeah, so let's start with kind of where we left off last week, which was basically what started this revolution, what started this revolt. Um, and the events start in 66. 60, nope, not that one. This would be better. 66 is where things start. So we'll kind of do that, and we're going to work our way just over the next few years just to get, get kind of a... Um, uh, lead up to the the main event, which is the siege of Jerusalem. Um, all right, so we talked about sixty six. The basics for this, what is kind of stirring things up, is you have a lot of um, antagonism between the Romans who are ruling the area and the Jews, um, or even just a lot of antagonism between non any non Jews in the area. So Greeks, you know, um, just anybody who's there that's not Jewish. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of kind of um, uh, anti-Semitism. There's a lot of antagonism, and then the procurator for the region, who we talked about last week, his name is Gessius Florus. He really kind of throws a few matches into the haystack of tensions, um, and we talked about a little bit of that. He taxes the people heavily. He raids the temple. He puts down, when people are complaining, he violently puts down these, these uh, kind of protests, kills a lot of people, um, and that just stirs, stirs things up. <clears throat> and so with that, then, you have all sorts of, uh, basically, conflicts that break out across Judea, and all the Roman garrisons, basically, are attacked by a Jewish rebels, factions, and that kind of kicks things off. So we, um, that's kind of the background. Before the Romans send their army in to, to squash things, there is a legion. There is a legion, uh, so a small group of soldiers up in Syria that comes in, and they put down a lot of the rebellions, but then when they get down to Jerusalem, there's, there's kind of a massacre um, where the Jewish, the Jewish um, uh, kind of coalition... Uh, catches them while they're heading back to their camp and kills 6,000 of them. And that's what makes Nero, who's the emperor, 
say, all right, I need to take my, one of my best generals, Vespasian, and send him in with four legions to kind of obliterate this area because it's not working. Um, and so that's, again, sort of the lead up where then, then Vespasian comes in. So we get to 67. 67 is when Vespasian lands here in the north with four legions, or he's got a couple, and his son Titus comes in. But you've got this Roman army that lands here. And the first thing they do is they conquer the north. So they, it's called the Galilee Campaign, and they basically they conquer the north. The Galilee campaign. Um, key thing there, so uh, there's no like pitched battle because the because there's no way for the Jews to be able to put up a fight. So they basically go from city to city, and any city with walls, they they besiege for a few days and then conquer, and they go to the next city, and it's basically just taking over city by city. Um, the things to note about this is that the Jewish leader. Um, in the north is Josephus. So Josephus is the Jewish leader in the north, and he is captured. So he gets captured and basically becomes a, like a, like a secretary for the, for the Roman general Vespasian at that point. So he's, the, um, so he's a Jew, but he's basically kind of Romanized. Yeah? I mean, didn't they kind of adopt him out of regard? Yeah, yeah. So he is he is more than just in their employment. Yeah, he does become they they he actually changes his name to uh, Flavius Josephus, so he takes the last name of Vespasian and is adopted into his family. So he, he does become more than yeah, just a secretary. Um, and yeah, he is he is well known. People he he does a good job leading the people, leading the fights, but um, and that's, yeah, that's where he wins respect from the Romans. So then they kind of adopt him and bring him into the fold. Um, so that's important for the north. The second thing, though, is that there's a group of, there's a group of um, insurgents in the north called the Zealots. Um, well, I mean, you've heard of the Zealots, right? So the Zealots is a, a party or a faction, right, in Israel. And they have a stronghold and a strong contingent in the north. And when the north falls, they all head south. Everybody heads south. Um, everybody heads south here. But um, they, they're going to go um, kind of all the way to Jerusalem, basically. So the zealots and everybody who survives this heads south to get out of, get out of the way. Um, and so you just imagine that during this North campaign, everybody's kind of heading this way, but the Zealots have a stronghold, and they end up moving their kind of their headquarters to, to Jerusalem. Um, all right, so that's that's sixty seven. That's that is kind of the first uh, campaign. Then we have sixty eight, and sixty eight is the year that Nero uh, commits suicide. So that, that changes things because now you've got a lot of upheaval in the, uh, the Roman Empire. Um, so in 68, when Nero commits suicide, Vespasian, who's the general, he, he doesn't make kind of, as everybody's moving here, Jerusalem is the main stronghold. He doesn't head to Jerusalem, but he kind of waits it out a little bit because he has to wait for orders from the new emperor, right? So in the meantime, 
he is going to uh, kind of take over. So he's up here in the north. He's going to now campaign here in this area, kind of middle Israel. And we are going to read a little bit about some events that happened that year as, again, he's heading south to Jerusalem. So um, he is conquering the coast here. He's conquering the Jordan River area and what's on the other side, uh, he and his generals. Uh, so one thing to talk about, right, is Revelation. Um, I believe uh, Revelation was written probably mid-60s, so a f- couple, few years maybe before this sometime predicting some of these events, prophesying some of these events. Um, And so you can look at, there's a lot of side-by-sides that look at a lot of different things in Revelation, try and compare them to things that happened. But we'll look at just a couple things that happened. Um, A big part of Revelation, right, is the, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of wrath that are poured out on the land, all predicting these chaotic, apocalyptic events. Um, so we're going to read, we're just going to read the seven bowls, which are the seven bowls of wrath poured out on the land that are kind of the, the final, they are some of the final sort of apocalyptic passages in, in Revelation. So if you want to turn to Revelation 16, we'll read the first, read about the first three bowls. And then we'll talk about a couple things that happened in Josephus. Uh, so if somebody wants to do 16, Revelation 16, 1 to, we'll say, 7. 1 to 7. We got a micro? Okay. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the earth, and the harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and it became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, and for you for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar say, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, trust and just, the true and just are your judgments. Okay. So we have the first three bowls. Uh, first bowl is poured out on the land or the earth, the second on the sea, and the third on the rivers. And then we have the, um, the, the, the uh, let's see, oh, the third angel then, right, says, um, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. You have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. So this is poured out on a land, on a people that killed the prophets and deserve what they're getting. So that's what we are kind of looking for. Um, so we have this, this northern campaign, right? And then in the southern campaign or this middle campaign, there's two really kind of famous events. One is when uh, the Romans take Joppa, this port of Joppa, and then one is this battle that happens on the Jordan River. Um, so we'll read a couple of these from Josephus. So I'll, I'll read, um, the first one is this siege or this battle for Joppa. So they're, they're conquering the whole, this whole area around here. And as they're enclosing on Joppa, the, the residents and the, the kind of the, the, all the rebels 
they get into their boats <clears throat> and they try and flee by jumping in their boats and heading off and heading out into the, the ocean, uh, into the Mediterranean. And so this is kind of where we pick, off, pick up in uh, Josephus book three. Uh, it says, now as these people of Joppa were floating about in the sea, in the morning there fell a violent wind upon them and there dashed their ships one against another and dashed some of them against the rocks and carried many of them by force while they strove against the opposite waves into the main sea. For the shore was so rocky and had so many of the enemy, the Romans, upon it, that they were afraid to come to land. And much lamentation was there when the ships were dashed against one another, and a terrible noise when they were broken to pieces. Some of the (coughs) multitude that were in them were covered with waves and so perished. But some of them thought that to die by their own swords was lighter than by the sea, so they killed themselves before they were drowned although the greatest part of them were carried by the waves and dashed to pieces against the abrupt parts of the rocks, insomuch that the sea was bloody a long way, and the maritime parts were full of dead bodies. For the Romans came upon those that were carried to the shore and destroyed them, and the number of the bodies that were thus thrown out of the sea was 4,200. The Romans also took the city without opposition and utterly demolished it. (coughs) That's a famous incident where you have... A complete annihilation right of the city of this area and we hear you know Josephus says and the sea was bloody for a long ways and the shore was full of dead bodies so that is could potentially be something could potentially be related to that bowl of wrath that's poured on the sea um, and then we have campaigning down the Jordan River as well <clears throat> and I'll read one section from Josephus that talks about um, the Roman general that is kind of Basically, he does the same thing. He's um, attacking all the cities here and kind of funneling everybody, pushing everybody south. They're trying to get to Jerusalem, and they get to the Jordan River. And you might remember, too, when Israel is coming into the Promised Land, the river is parted, right, and they're able to cross on dry land. And uh, you kind of have a similar situation where they're all on that east side, and they're trying to get across. So we'll read this out of book seven. Uh, this is after a number of the cities on that east side of the Jordan were taken. The Jews are, f- are fleeing towards Jerusalem. And it says, but Placidus, who's the Roman general, relying much upon his horsemen and ho- upon former good success, followed them. <clears throat> so he's following them as they're heading, they're fleeing towards the Jordan. And slew all that he overtook as far as Jordan. And when he had, when, and when he had driven the whole multitude to the riverside, <clears throat> where they were stopped by the current, for it had been augmented lately by rains and was not fordable. He put his soldiers in array over against them, so the necessity the others were in provoked them to hazard a battle, because there was no place whither they could flee. They then extended themselves a very great way along the banks and sustained darts that were thrown at them, as well as the attacks of the horsemen who beat many of them and pushed them into the current at which fight, hand-to-hand, 15,000 of them were slain, while the number of those that were unwillingly forced to leap into the Jordan was prodigious. Now this direction that fell upon the Jews, as it was not inferior to any of the rest in itself, so did it still appear greater than it really was. And this, because not only the whole country that, which, that through which they fled was filled with slaughter, and the Jordan could not be passed over by reason of the dead bodies that were in it, but because the lake, the Dead Sea, 
so the lake down below the Jordan, was also full of dead bodies that were carried down it by the river. So um, there's, these are just a couple examples, right, of the, of the altercations that happen uh, between the Romans as they're pushing south. Uh, you have the sea, you have the river, the river flowing into the sea, and it's covered in blood. You can't, you can't drink the water because it's blood, but a lot of the people drowned in it. And so, you know, this says, the, the um, revelation said, you know, they killed the prophets and now they'll drink, drink the blood. And so there's something there with potentially drowning in this blood of the, um, their own blood could be fulfilling that prophecy. <clears throat> So those are a couple a couple things that happened as as we head down to Jerusalem. Any questions about any of those situations? Ben? Yeah. So um, Josephus is a primary source for this. Is there any other primary sources about this history? Uh, yeah, there is maybe two or three. They're not as complete or detailed. So he's famous for <coughs> having the most detail. Um, Tacitus is a Roman historian and I think Suetonius is another one that they write about it but not as much detail some of the details might be conflicting and that's where you take you have to take some of it um, with a grain of salt also he is writing for the Romans so some of the numbers might be off they they all generally show the Romans Vespasian Titus in a positive light um, showing how Maybe they were trying to hold their soldiers back from doing this thing, but they couldn't, you know, and their soldiers did something or things like that. But that is a good question. The history is definitely not <coughs> unbiased. Okay. <clears throat> so then we'll get to 69. Uh, this is the year. We've talked about this before. Um, in review, right? Remember Nero was the last emperor of the dynasty, the first dynasty of Romans. We had five emperors, most of which are mentioned in the New Testament, uh, from Augustus down to Nero. Well, he's the last of this dynasty. Um, the next year is called the year of four emperors, which means civil war in Rome. Um, Galba is the emperor that takes over for him, so he's the first, and there's another one, and there's another one. And in December of this year, Vespasian becomes emperor. So Vespasian is the fourth, the fourth emperor that year, Vespasian. He, has, he controls a lot of the east part of the empire. He's got a lot of legions. He's well-respected. And so he becomes the, the fourth emperor that year. Um, um, so that's kind of a, a little bit of a focus. So Vespasian then leaves in 69 and goes to Rome to take over and he leaves Titus in charge. So Vespasian leaves Titus, his son takes over. Takes over and he also will become the next emperor after Vespasian maybe 10 or 12 years later. So he'll be the next emperor but uh, this is, he then kind of completes the war. Um, let's see you, if you, so a little bit of a side note, jumping into Revelation, um, the beast, there's different beasts in Revelation, but one of the beasts in Revelation um, has ten, uh, seven heads and ten horns. One of the um, thoughts on that is Rome is known as the city with seven hills. Potentially that is what the seven heads stands for. And then 
the ten horns could potentially be those ten first emperors that we had. If you count through the first five, uh, so Nero ends the five Julio-Claudians. That's five Julio-Claudians. Uh, then you have the year of four emperors. And then you have Titus, who, might, who becomes emperor, could be the tenth. Uh, hills, the seven hills of Rome, the city of seven hills. That could potentially be, a, there's different interpretations. So you, you can, you know, kind of look into it. But that's one thing people think of, and that's, again, tells us about Rome. Um, but we do have our 10th emperor here. Um, so anyways, um, we, that, that's in Revelation 17, and we might read some of that if we get to it. But um, the thing to note, the next big thing, so, I feel like there's a couple things that you want to that, that should stand out. The the next big thing to remember is that with all this destruction, you have the zealots, you have everybody coming here. Jerusalem is a very well fortified city, and everybody is heading to Jerusalem, um, and that's kind of throughout 69. You have continuing people to come. Uh, 70 is when uh, you know kind of Titus is in charge, and that's when. Um, he decides to make his uh, move on Jerusalem. In the middle of all this, though, I would say the big things to note is while everybody's coming here, um, there is a civil war. There's civil war in Jerusalem. And that's kind of the big, big thing to, the big thing to um, kind of, know this is going on is in Jerusalem you have all these factions and all these different parties coming in Jerusalem and there is a lot of infighting and civil war and strife between all the different parties that are trying to take control of Jerusalem the two main parties are the zealots and then we have this uh, and maybe the moderates we'll call them the moderates who are kind of uh, in the uh, high priest is in charge of them those are just kind of some of like the two main parties and they are fighting for control of the city. Um, so the civil war is really important. Um, lots of, of infighting. 15 minutes. One famous story is called the Zealot Temple Siege. Um, the Zealot Temple Siege is when basically the fighting between the two parties gets so bad that the zealots take over the temple and they're besieged by the moderates who are outside of it. They get into this, like, they, they are fighting constantly, and the zealots actually leave. They send out messengers. They send messengers out here to the Idumeans, who are this southern, this, this uh, group of people, right, we've talked about before. And they ask for help against the moderates because they, the zealots think, the zealots want to fight to the death against Rome, right? They, they, will, not, they will not capitulate. And they hear that the moderates want to potentially surrender to Rome. So they ask the Idumeans for help. And so then the, the Idumeans send 20,000 soldiers to Jerusalem while the Romans are coming. And the zealots let them in. And there's this massive battle between 20,000 Idumeans, the zealots, and the moderates. And the civilian population is caught in the middle, right? So there's this massive battle uh, eventually, the zealots conquer and take over, and they're in control of the city, but they've wiped out the city. Um, they say, you know, um, 
there it's I mean the numbers are hard to tell, but there's there's massive amounts of casualties in this fight, in in this <coughs> battle. Um, but I think that's just another kind of key thing to to keep in mind is that we have we have like there's there's um, the Roman problem, but then there's the civil the civil war civil strife problem. And I'll read one section of Josephus where he talks a little bit about this to kind of um, to kind of wrap that up. Um, but it says, now while these factions, this is book five, now while these factions fought against one another, the people were their prey, so the kind of civilian population on both sides. Um, so they were preying on just your local population, stealing stuff, raiding, pillaging, anybody who had anything. Um, so the people were their prey on both sides. And that part of the people which would not join with them in their wicked practices were plundered by both factions. For this internal sedition, the zealots did not cease, even when the Romans were encamped near, encamped near their walls. But although they had grown wiser at the first onset the Romans made upon them, this lasted but a while. For they returned to their former madness and separated one from another and fought it out. And did everything that the besiegers, the Romans, could desire them to do. So some say Vespasian took his time lollygagging around, waiting to attack Rome because they were <coughs> doing the damage themselves. He didn't need to. Josephus says that, but again, who knows if he was actually thinking that. Nor was there any misery endured by the city after these men's actions that could be esteemed new, but it was, not, but it was most of all unhappy before it was overthrown. While those that took it did a greater kindness, for I venture to affirm that the sedition destroyed the city and the Romans destroyed the sedition. The sedition would be the civil strife, which it was much, a much harder thing to do to destroy the sedition than to destroy the walls, so that we may justly ascribe our misfortunes to our own people and the just vengeance taken on them to the Romans. Um, so again, that is him kind of talking about, right, how the real problem was within the walls of Jerusalem. <clears throat> okay, so that is the setup for the, the kind of last stand in Jerusalem. Um, one thing to note is uh, in the spring of 70 is when Titus is starting to sort of close the noose around mm -hmm. Jerusalem, and that's right at Passover. So at the same time, you still have a lot of pilgrims coming from all over, coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Yeah? Well, yeah, <clears throat> well you're probably going to get into this, but just in case. So the, the Christians didn't flee to Jerusalem because in 1924, right. they had fled to, I can't remember, that there was a particular town, but in the mountains, so yep. the Christians were spared from all yeah, as best we can tell, they, there were not a lot of Christians in the city. Um, there is a, um, a quote by Eusebius, who's a, a church historian, who's, who wrote, When the people of the church in Jerusalem were instructed by an oracular revelation delivered to worthy men there to move away from the city and to live in a city of Perea called Pella, the believers in Christ migrated from Jerusalem to that place. So they should have yeah, known better. And as the armies are approaching, because of Matthew, because of Revelation, potentially, right, was there, there the letter, um, they would have fled the city. <clears throat> so it does appear, yeah, that there's not, there are not very many um, Christians in the city. 
Um, but you are celebrating Passover, though, right? Which they shouldn't have been celebrating, right? Because of the crucifixion, right? So that's why they're coming and go to the city. So at that time, two-thirds, they think about two-thirds of the city is like pilgrims or people from out of town who are in the city. And that's when uh, the siege happens. Um, all right, so basic, basic thing. Um, again, you have the siege, civil strife, um, all sorts of stuff's happening. The, I'll do a quick diagram of Jerusalem uh, because it might be helpful. You essentially have three parts to the city. Um, you have the temple area, temple mount with the temple. That's your highest, strongest area. Uh, you have a city, uh, kind of the primary city walls that go around it, like so. And that's kind of your main city wall. There's a uh, second wall that goes out that's kind of later and smaller, and then like a third wall that's farther. So you have this third wall, second wall, and then main wall that's most fortified with the temple on it. And essentially the way the siege works, uh, this is the Kidron Valley here. So you have a valley kind of here. Kidron Valley here. You have another valley here. This wall is super tall. Uh, and so these are all hard areas to get at. So the siege comes in this way. So they go this way to get into the second wall or the first wall. Uh, that just takes a week or so. A few days later, they get into the second wall. And so they're all in here. And then this is where they attack to get into the main gates or the main um, part of the city. And that part takes three months. <clears throat> so they're into the first and second wall in just a couple weeks. They dig a, uh, a siege wall, siege ditch, and siege wall around here. And that takes three months. And that's where, again, you imagine you've got this civil war, can't get in or out of the city. Um, and you have all sorts of people from out of town, and they are locked up for three months. And it's May, or it's June, July, and August, or it's from May to August in Israel. Um, so with that, uh, let's read a little more of, <coughs> let's read a little more of Revelation. So let's do um, the, the next seven, or the rest of the seven bowls. Um, <clears throat> so verses 8 through 12 we'll do. Let me do Revelation 16, 8 through 12. Yes. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch the people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water yeah, its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Could you do, uh, let's skip to 17. We'll do 17 to the end, 17 to 21, and that's the seventh bowl. Okay. Uh, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. 
The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on the people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Okay, those are the, the last of the bowls of wrath. Um, <clears throat> so a couple things we can talk about. First, you have some of the natural disasters. Um, there's a couple things. Josephus does talk about how when, when the zealots let the Idumeans into the city, there was a super violent storm that night, which is what um, kind of muffled the sounds of them knocking the gates down and opening the gates and letting them in. And he talks about earthquakes, thunder, lightning, things like that. Um, so potentially what it's talking about is here could be some real things like that. Also, uh, all during this three-month siege, the Romans are building battering rams and siege works and are knocking down wall after wall after wall. Um, and they also have catapults, and they are sending missiles and rocks and everything over the walls and destroying things. So maybe that's some, some of that is going on as well. But for three months, you have a really bad situation in the city. Starvation is the other thing. You've got this massive <coughs> starvation that's happening there's some accounts of like cannibalism. It gets so bad. Um, one thing the zealots do again when they hear maybe some people might be wanting to to quit the um, you know surrender to the Romans is they burn a massive amount of the food stores that were in the city to kind of force everybody to fight it out to the to the death. Um, <clears throat> so you have you have all of that happening uh, while the Romans are are. Uh, besieging the city. You also have um, anytime the zealots hear that somebody is trying to get out of the city, they will kill them, kill their friends, kill everybody. Anybody who gets out of the city gets crucified by the Romans. So Josephus says up to 500 people a day were being crucified crucified outside the walls if they escaped. Um, so you, you have a pretty, pretty gruesome situation here. And again, we're in the heat of the summer uh, in, in Jerusalem. All right, so then um, let's see. That is, we are getting towards the end. Um, let me see what time. Yeah, 9.26. All right, so then we're in uh, August. August. Um, the Romans are finally able to breach this last wall, which lets them into the Temple Mount here. Um, there's about four days or so of fighting just in here. Um, kind of over every inch of the courtyards. The temple is super well fortified, so there's fighting in here. One part of it, the Jews set a kind of a trap for the Romans, and they burn down. A, a, when they kind of let the Romans in, they burn a huge portion of this down. And then in the final stand right here around the temple, um, the, the Romans, at some point, somebody throws a torch into one of the buildings, and that lights it all on fire. Um, so that's when the temple burns down completely. Uh, the soldiers come in and they take, take a bunch of the stuff out. Um, and Josephus writes, uh, as the legions charged in, neither persuasion nor threat could check their impetuosity. Passion alone was in command. Crowded together around the entrances, many were trampled by their friends. Many fell among the still hot and smoking ruins of the colonnades and died as miserably as the defeated. Those are Roman soldiers, he's saying. 
Um, as they neared the sanctuary, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's commands and urged the men in front of them to, to throw in more firebrands. The partisans um, were no longer in a position to help. Everywhere was slaughter and flight. Most of the victims were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, butchered wherever they were caught. Round the altar, the heaps of corpses grew higher and higher, while down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood and the bodies of those killed at the top slithered down to the bottom. So you have this mass, kind of mass apocalyptic event um, that ends, doesn't end everything, but that's sort of the, the climactic event in the siege. Um, and with it, the, the temple's burnt down. Um, the, he also says, um, <clears throat> so after that, this is kind of where they come in. They then have to spend a few weeks burning, pillaging, and killing everybody in the rest of the city as people are kind of flee, trying to get out and fleeing. Um, and by the end of it, you know, the whole city's burned to the ground, basically. Um, it says that, Josephus says that he leaves a few towers standing so people can see, like, what they had to deal with when they raised everything to the ground. Um, and he says, uh, he says, for the rest of the wall surrounding Jerusalem, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. Uh, so another thing we, when we think back to Matthew and Luke, there would be no stone, not one stone left upon another. Um, there was kind of complete destruction of the city and it was raised and knocked over. Um, and so there's a few things there. I think you can make some, some, uh, some application to what is predicted. Any questions about any of that? Do we know what the abomination of desolation is? Oh, that's a good question. I wasn't going to get into it because it is, uh, there's a lot of things going on. But I think that is going to be the high priest and the, uh, the um, I think the abomination of desolation would be the, yeah, the high priest, the Judaizers, the apostate Jewish leadership. Um, and there's, there's a lot of different reasons for that, but the main thing that um, people say is that uh, you have to be like a foreigner or a, a Roman, a Greek, any Babylonian, any of these people that come in, they can't be abominations because that word's used for like sacrilege. That's something like a Jewish sacrilegious that would be a Jewish sacrilegious activity in the temple. So they can come in and knock over the temple. They can burn it down, but they can't be the abomination that makes desolate. <clears throat> and I think part of the reasoning is, uh, if you look at the pattern, the abomination is the kind of the apostate, <clears throat> the apostate um, Jews, and that is what causes God to leave and make the area, make it desolate. So now it's a temple that's <coughs> desolated because of the apostatism. Um, it's used a few different spots, so you kind of have to look at the different contexts. But that, I think, is sort of the short answer. Is, um, and that's a little bit what sort of the, I think, is, is interesting about the Josephus thing, where he says they brought this on themselves. They really did. They really did. Um, and also, he, he, says, he says that when he was sort of pleading with them to to surrender, he, he, he uh, kind of hearkens 
them to Jeconiah, who is the king that um, listens to, I think it's Jeremiah, who says, you need to go to Babylon. This is God's will. You need to leave. And, and it says, like, Jeconiah went to Babylon, lived out his, his life into old age peacefully. But then you have Zedekiah, I think the next king, who rebels, and he is the cause of the Babylonians coming in and doing the exact same thing, tearing everything to the ground. So you have, you have a number of things um, kind of going on there. But that is, um, yeah, that's the abomination of desolation, probably. Any other questions about that? Yeah. How long, how long has it been since the flood, the best days where God wiped out all men? And I think how God wiped out all men was much, well, you're drowning in all this carnage, mm-hmm. you know? But he had wiped us all out and we started over again. Right. And yeah. how long before we have to start it all again? Mm-hmm. Because Jesus said that he is the temple. Right. Yeah, so I think that is kind of the, the application, right, is you see, you see a lot of, like, turmoil in the world, you know, around us, but it starts with the church, and it's the church would be kind of the thing you look at. It's the church that has to be faithful, and it's when the church apostatizes that you have problems, and that's kind of what you see now or you've seen through history is that it's the church that first apostatizes and then it goes out to the people. Um, was it 2,000 years from the flood to the... Yeah, I don't know. Um, if we're maybe. Now. Right, I'm not sure. I have not. My timeline doesn't go back that far in my head. Um, maybe somebody else has it. <coughs> but yeah. Um, all right. That, I think, brings us to... Oh, yeah, we are over. Um, all right. I will pray, and then we will, we will break. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this story that um, you told, um, that you are telling. I pray that we would uh, learn from it and uh, that we would learn uh, your word through your Bible, through the word and through um, history, and that we would make it it real in our lives and apply it. And I pray you would help us to um, use wisdom as we read these things and compare it to all the things we see around us. Um, Please bless the rest of our day, the preaching, um, the service, and uh, the rest of our week. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.